Well, hi everyone. What an honour it is to be standing here this morning. I'm so excited about this morning and what I feel God has given me to share. Uh, and by way of introduction to that, um, I want to just hop back a few weeks ago when uh, I went to the Watch, which is a, an evening where we pray together as a family. And, and it was um, just after we'd launched Project Home. Look on the website if you're not sure what that is. And uh, and Sarah prayed something that really struck me, and she prayed that as we were preparing for a building financially, um, actually we would also be preparing for a building as a family, that we would be ready to hold whatever this building has for us and what God will do with it whenever it might come, but we'll be ready as a family. We would be a fully functioning family, and it's actually the word we wouldn't be dysfunctional that she prayed. I don't think you remember it, Sarah, do you? But it really struck me. Because I went away and I thought about that word like dysfunctional and or fully functioning. And there's no area in my life that I know has led me to not be an amazingly fully functioning member of this family. You probably, I hope, haven't noticed it. I certainly know it's there. John definitely knows it's there. And there's a few others that might do as well. Um, and so I want to talk about a bit of a weakness this morning. I suspect I'm probably not the only one that has or will struggle with it. Um, and how we can move into wholeness. That's really where we're going. Going on a bit of a journey this morning of, of problem, difficulty, struggle, into wholeness, into fullness, into who we are called to be. And so this morning I'm talking about the importance of being you. And Mark, um, the lovely Mark Lawrence, posted on Facebook um, a few weeks back a quote from well, you're doing quite a few quotes from this uh, theologian called Jean Vanier. I think I'm pronouncing that properly. And um, it says this, Community is made up of people with all their richness, but also with their weakness and poverty, of people who accept and forgive each other, who are vulnerable to each other. So I, I think that's what I'm bringing to you this morning. I'm bringing a bit of a struggle. I'm bringing a bit of a weakness. I'm being a bit vulnerable. But I'm hoping... For those of you that are maybe have been or are in a similar place to me, we'll be able to move forward and find wholeness this morning. Before I mention even what it is, though, there's something that has to start. There's something that has to be first, the foundation that has to be laid. And I want to talk about being uniquely made and uniquely loved. Psalm 139 talks about how we're formed in utter seclusion, how God knows us from the very moment of conception. He knows who we are. He knows he knows our name. He knows how many days we'll walk this earth. And he's created us uniquely. Each one of us is completely different, right down to the details of our fingerprints. We're different. I'm me, and you're you. And we're not the same. We're unique. That's really obvious. There's going to be a lot of really obvious stuff this morning, but it helps me. It helps me. Um, and we know that God loves us, don't we? He loves us with a lavish love. And we did a series a while back called Lavish, which I'd really encourage you to podcast if you've not heard it, because it explores so fully this amazing love that God has for us, that's unconditional, that's sacrificial, that's steadfast. It's incredible. But I read something recently um, by a lady called Lisa Bevere, who's an American author and speaker, and it really caught my attention. And it said this, Often, in our human attempt to make things fair, we're tempted to think that God loves us all the same. As good as this sounds, same isn't big enough. The word same implies that we might somehow be replaceable or interchangeable. We know that this isn't true. And she put this forward, God loves us uniquely. And I know this might sound like semantics to you. It might sound like just different words that mean the same thing, but they don't to me. Like my spirit stood to attention as I read that. Because actually, 
I thought about my experience of becoming um, a parent for the second time. So John and I have two children, um, Livy and Asaph. I think there's going to be a little picture of them in a moment. Here they are. Look at that. Aren't they beautiful? For the podcast, there are two cute children on the screen. And so um, Livia is four, Asaph is two, turning like 15, but two. And... Uh, and I thought about when, when we had Asaph, my love for Livy wasn't somehow divided into two. It's not like I had a reserve in me that somehow had to be shared so that the love I had for them was the same. My love for them was multiplied in ways that are immeasurable. And I thought, gosh, if I as a parent can, can do that in my imperfection, in my weakness, how much more can Father in Heaven do that for us? His love for us is multiplied because we're unique. And I thought about my children and how unique they are and how different they are to each other. We've got two, two parents that are the same for each child. You'll be glad to know. Um, that wasn't planned. <laughs> uh, we have the same home environment. Trying to kind of bring them up with, with, you know, the same kind of principles and the same values, but they are wildly different. And I think I've got time. Let me tell you a quick story. If you don't know uh, my two children, that will demonstrate their uniqueness and their difference to each other. So a few weeks ago, we were in Wales on holiday and, um, for my dad's 70th birthday. And we were, we, for one of the days, we went to this big kind of barn playground fairground ride thing. Parents, you know what I mean. It's just like got everything in there over this huge space. And um, we decided to go for lunch, and there was this massive, massive barn that was only one part of this huge area. And in this barn, it's like this Victorian fairground area that was massive. There was all the eating area, and there were, there were like three huge jungle gyms, which are like soft play things, for those of you that haven't had the joy of that yet. And so um, it's huge. That's what I'm trying to say. It's massive. So we go in, sit down, have our lunch. The children are just like wide-eyed, like, wow, this is incredible. Cannot wait to get going. But we said, no, we just need to have some lunch before you get going. And so Asaph is stuffing his food down as quickly as possible, like, is it in his mouth. Cannot wait to go and play. Livy is leisurely eating, seeing if we would like to share some of her food, having a chat to us about what she's enjoyed so far. <laughs> then... Uh, so then finally lunch is over we're telling them which bit of this huge place we can they can go in so it's this like under two soft play bit a two to six soft play bit and then a six and over soft play bit so we're pointing out the two to six year old bit that's the bit they can go in so Livy's nodding away listening carefully yes okay that's where I'll be Asaph on the other hand is pulling his shoes off whilst we were explaining to him no I, I could tell not listening taking a blind bit of notice of what we were saying so I was trying to sit him down Asaph this is where you need to be okay rules explained in they go John and I have a coffee you know that quiet five minutes of the day that you get and uh Livy's going round, making friends, looking over to us, making sure we're sharing in her excitement, waving, Mummy, look at me, all of that. Asaph just whirling round and round and round, not looking back at us in the slightest. And then we realise after about five minutes that we've not seen Asaph do one of his laps for a little while. So I say to Livy, Livy, can you just see if Asaph is in there, please? And uh, she has, a, you know, like a four-year-old version of a look around. And um, she says, no, I don't, he's not in there. So I'm like, oh, okay. So, and we definitely hadn't seen him come out. And so I then went in there. I hate going in those things, but I went in there. 
and no Asaph. So it's like, John, he's, he's not in there. Hundreds of kids, massive barn, a child that pays me no attention. <laughs> and uh, so John, John, exuding calm, is, uh, says, right, you stay there, you watch Livy, I'll go and have a little look around. So John then has a, has a look around the food area, no Asaph. He then has to go on the Six Novas Jungle Gym, which has got like rope swings and massive slides and whatnot. Hats off to John there. No Asaph. He does like a whole circuit around the perimeter of this barn. No Asaph. Then we realise we actually have not put the wristband on him that we were given to put a phone number if that child is lost. Massive parenting fail. Lesson learnt for next time. And so this is now at the point of thinking, right, when, when should we be notifying a member of staff? I'm thinking that was probably about five minutes ago. We've missed it already. We're late. Anyway, at that moment, Asaph comes bounding up, happy as anything. And we look at him and we're like, where have you been? It's that mixture of like anger, love, frustration, like all in one. And I swept him up into my arms and said, where have you been? Asaph, you don't just go wandering off where you want to go. And he looked at me as if not a care in the world. I'm like, what, what have I done wrong? And then I said again, where have you been? And he almost... It was as if he'd just shrugged his shoulders. He didn't, but it was as if he did. And he just went to the toilet and he did a wee. I was like, you're two years old. You can barely speak in a way that people understand you. Seriously. So, but you know what? In that moment, I have a point to this, I promise. In, in that moment, um, I thought, gosh, our children are really, really different in the extreme. But you know what? I love them with everything. And I love their difference. I don't want them to be the same. I don't love one of them more. I love their uniqueness. I love Livy's carefulness. I love her desire for relationship, her desire for connection. But I also love Asaph's independence and exploration and investigation. I love them both. Neither one of them occupies more space in my heart just because they're different. See my point? Again, maybe that's blindingly obvious to you, but for me, it held a revelation understanding how God sees us, our perfect Father in heaven. And it's also to do with unlocking the meaning of the word unique, that we are unique. And it has three meanings. The first one is that we're the sole representative of ourselves. There is no, there's no one else that's representing us that's us. We're not scheduled for mass production. And it's this third one. We're without rival. We're without rival. And I'm getting to the struggles that I talked about before. That's what jumps out at me. Uniquely made and uniquely loved, I'm without rival. There's no rival for my place in God's heart. There's no rival for your place in God's heart. There's no rival for your position on this earth. And incidentally, Lisa Bevere, that author I mentioned before, she's actually just released a book called Without Rival that is well worth a read if what I'm about to talk about is something that you can identify with. So now as children of God, then, what is it that God has put in you uniquely? What makes you you? What are your gifts? What makes you laugh? What are you talented at? What are you anointed at? What has God called you to? There's so many facets that come together to make me me and to make you you. And I just want to uh, pull on one more quote that Mark posted from that theologian from Jean Vanier uh, a week or so ago, and it says this. And this is going to move on to the struggle we're going to look at this morning. Using our gifts is building community. 
If we're not faithful to our gifts, we're harming the community and each of its members as well. So it's important that all members know what their gifts are, use them, and take responsibility for developing them. We all need each other's gifts. We must encourage their growth and fidelity to them. And here we go. Everyone will find their place in community according to their gift. They will become not only useful, but unique and necessary to the others. And so rivalry and jealousy will evaporate. Rivalry and jealousy evaporates when we know our place, when we know that we're unique. And there they are, black and white. That's what we're going to go for this morning. We're going to go for jealousy. We're going to go for rivalry. And we're going to add one more. We're going to look at envy this morning. And in your hearts, you might be thinking, yes, hooray, unlikely, because it's, it's like not a comfortable set of emotions. But you know what? It's what God challenged me with this morning to bring. It's what I have journeyed with, and I'm increasingly becoming more and more successful in how, and have authority in how I respond to it in myself. And I guess at this point, let's pray, because gosh, Holy Spirit, we need you right now. I guess, um, yeah, Holy Spirit, would you just come and still our hearts thank you God that nothing is too far away for you thank you God that your promise for us is wholeness and freedom from anything that holds us back from keeping us away from you or the purposes that you have for us and we just agree with David's prayer this morning of search us oh God and know our hearts if there's anything in us God that is not of you we want that to be revealed and we want it to be pulled out Thank you, God, that we can trust you. Thank you, God, that you uniquely love us. That is our starting point, that we're uniquely loved. Amen. Okay, so envy then. is the feeling, and this is a horrific definition, but it's what it is. Let's say it as it is. Envy is the feeling of displeasure produced by witnessing or hearing of the advantage or prosperity of others. Oh, gosh, what a horrible emotion. Feeling displeasure because you're seeing someone else do well. That's essentially what it is. I can say, everyone's saying, no, that's not me. I don't struggle with that. Well, I do. (laughs) And probably some of you do. Probably all of us will at some point or have done at some point. But you know what? It's not God's way for us. And God has a lot to say on it. The first verse I want to look at is this in Romans 12. And this is a message version. So since we find ourselves fashioned into all these excellently formed and marvelously functioning parts in Christ's body, let's just go ahead and be what we were made to be, without enviously or pridefully comparing ourselves with each other or trying to be something we aren't. And so this passage reveals the two main attackers to this life without rival, pride and envy. Pride says, yeah, I don't really need you, actually. I'm, I'm good at me. Mine's the most important role. I can do it on my own, thank you very much. Don't need to be in community. Don't need to be in family. That's pride. Envy says, I don't value what God's put in me because really I want what you've got. And it discounts what God's doing in us because we don't value what or see maybe what God's doing in us. And both of these things separate us from our function and from our place within this church family, if you call this church family home for you. But envy is the one that I want us to particularly look at today. And we're going to look at four verses now. They could not be clearer in God's view of envy. Proverbs 14 says this, A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Pretty pictorial, right? Galatians 5 says this, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. 
Let's not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. 1 Peter 2 verse 1. Therefore rid yourselves of all kind of malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Mark 7. Here's quite a list coming. For it's from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. Man, what a list. I don't want to find myself on that list. That's not where I want to sit in what the fruit of my life is coming out. But you know what? Envy is the one there that more often than I would care to admit, rears its head. But that's not the best that God has for us. I don't wake up in the morning and think, hey, do you know what? I just want to feel envious today. No one does that. That's ridiculous. So how is it that we get there? And I want to talk a bit today about comparison being the road to envy. Comparison is the way that we get there. And when I say comparison, I mean unhealthy comparison. Because I do think there is a, um, a healthiness in looking at what God is doing in someone else and thinking, wow, that inspires me. Heidi Baker is one of those people for me. She's got this incredible ministry in Mozambique. And every time I hear her speak, I think, you have met Jesus' love in a way and encountered it in a way that I haven't yet. But do you know what? I want to know what my radical love for Jesus looks like for me. That's what it looks like for you, Heidi, and that's incredible. But I want to know what it looks like for me. And she inspires me to push that bit more, to run that bit harder. I think that's good. I think that's healthy. That's not what I'm talking about this morning. I'm talking about when we unhealthily compare, when we have what I have very often said to John as an ugly set of emotions, being resentful, being bitter, being envious, being jealous, being discouraged, being discontent. I've described it as an ugly set of emotions. It's uncomfortable. It's not where I want to be. But we have to deal with it. can't just ignore it. I've tried that. It doesn't work. We have to deal with it and take it head on. So how is comparison then? Why is it so dangerous to unhealthily compare? If I say comparing from now on, assume that that means unhealthily. Okay. How is it the road to envy? I want to look at, uh, I think, three things. Firstly, it, has a, uh, it assumes false realities. So 2 Corinthians says this, not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who are commending themselves. When they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are not wise. And I want to just pull on that word classify. To classify means to put something in its place, to categorize it, to rank it, to grade it, to pigeonhole it, all synonyms for that kind of idea. And I think that Something that we need to deal well with in our lives in the 21st century now is how we handle social media. Because I think we can look at what people present on social media and that's what we measure and compare ourselves to. I do it. Maybe I'm alone, but I do it. And we see people's success. We see people's favor. We see people's looks. We see people's family situations. We see people's prosperity, maybe. And we just see the final outcome. We don't see the narrative that has gone behind that for them to get there. Take that, even that picture of my children, cute children in the wheelbarrow, blue sky, about to pick some vegetables from my grand's garden. Beautiful, right? What you don't know is for the 30 minutes prior to that is my son threw a a tortoise into my grand's very deep pond that we had to go in and fish out. (sighs) 
genuinely stressful. I don't take a picture of that. I might text a few people for comical effect, but I have, I don't take a picture of it. You don't see that. You see the picture of my cute children in a wheelbarrow. Oh, that's lovely. They're living a good life. Like, I know this trivia, it's a trivial example, but you get my meaning, right? So you see a picture and we create a narrative around it. We assume a narrative that it, 99.9% of the time is not true. And what we're doing is comparing ourselves and our messiness to someone's perfection, if you like. It's comparing our, our messiness to someone's highlight reel. And like, I love Facebook. I love Instagram. All of, well, I don't love it, but you know, it's all right. I don't, I don't, you know, I don't have a massive thing against it, but I do think we need to be careful with it and be checking ourselves and maybe the feelings that come if, when we see certain things and, and dealing with it appropriately if we have any of those niggles coming in of comparing ourselves. It's not wise. That's what Paul tells us. Comparison, it's not wise. Secondly, so comparison assumes false realities. It distracts us as well. Because when my focus is directed on, on everyone else around me and what God's doing in everyone around me, where is my focus not? It's not on the Lord. It's not on his goodness. It's not on his faithfulness. It's not on what he's doing in my life. And actually, if we're so busy looking at what God is doing in everybody else, this family will be robbed of what God is doing in you because you won't see it. If we focus on our lack, we'll miss what's actually present. Philippians 3 says this, Paul tells us this. He says, compared to the high privilege of knowing Christ Jesus as my master firsthand, this is the message, everything I once thought I had going for me is insignificant. It's dog dung. That's pretty pictorial, isn't it? It's dog dung. That's what Paul, that's what all this other stuff was worth to Paul in comparison to the highest privilege of knowing Jesus and knowing his love. He knew what it was to be focused on the highest prize and not being distracted by what he did or didn't have. He glimpsed the eternal and saw that nothing on this earth even came close to comparison to the glory of God. Okay, thirdly, comparison. It has a pull. So it assumes false realities. It distracts us and it has a pull. What do I mean by that? It pulls us away from who we are. Because it's either wanting to puff us up through pride. Oh, I'm actually doing a bit better than they are. That's good. Or it pushes us down through insecurity. And gosh, insecurity is cruel, isn't it? Oh, they've managed to do, to do that and I really wanted that. They've managed to lose all their baby weight and I haven't even come close yet. Welcome to my world. That's what goes on in my head. It's annoying. <laughs> but you know what? This is me being vulnerable this morning. I know not everyone is going to struggle with that particular one. That's quite specific. But you know what? It's, it's, um, it pulls me, it pulls me away from who I'm being called to be. It pulls me away from the, the core of myself, if you like. And actually from having integrity and having authenticity and what God's calling me to do. Okay, so this is the journey. Here's that. that was all the problem, the messiness of that. What then are our keys to freedom? And this is where I kind of want to land for these next 15 minutes. So, John's made me a beautiful picture of a tree. Look at that. Thank you very much, John. And the fruit that we're talking about this morning is 
It can be revealed, thank you. It's envy, bitterness, discontentment, jealousy, resentment, discouragement, rivalry. So we've hit on envy particularly, but I think all of those things often get packaged together in a, in a fairly horrific lump inside of us. Um, and I, I've put on here that I think the trunk, the way that that, um, that that sort of travels to reveal that fruit is these unhealthy comparisons. So what then are the roots? Because to deal with something properly, we need to know what the roots are so we can pull it out at the roots. And this is what I realized I had been doing. I was pruning fruit pretty well for the most part, not in front of John, but basically in front of everyone else. I was pruning fruit pretty well, but I wasn't getting to the roots. And one day I was before the Lord and I was like, God, this is the time I was actually being honest about it. It didn't happen all the time. I quite like to compartmentalize it away. I said, God, what is it that's going on? And in my spirit, I felt him say, you're afraid. I said, no, I'm not. I'm annoyed, actually. (laughs) Because they've got what I want, and I've been working at that really hard. But no, God, in his way, patient, patient way, you're afraid. And I realized, gosh, okay. So what I've been doing was trying to manage this fruit. Maybe not look at their Facebook and Instagram. That was step one in my life. Step two, start to distance myself away from them. Step three, not talk to them at all. Genuinely, seriously, this, this would be my strategy of dealing with feeling jealous or envious of someone. Totally breaks down any kind of relationship you have with the person, if that's the route that we take. But this is what God showed me. Actually, the route was fear. Fear that I'm not good enough. Fear that I'm not valued. Fear that I'm not significant. Fear that my dreams won't be realized. Fear that our finances will be forever full of tight budgets. Fear, fear, fear. Gosh, what a can of worms. But actually, I felt really encouraged. Because actually, if the problem, if the root is fear, then actually the solution is easy. It's love. Because perfect love drives out fear. God's perfect love drives out any fear in me. 1 John says this, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. And this is a work of his spirit. I can't make myself feel more love. It's a revelation to my heart that's needed. And that's, that's his job. It's my job to be open. It's my job to say, God, come, come and fill me and show me your perfect love that drives out fear. And it's his job to deliver on that. And you know what? That is a prayer that God will answer every single time. Because there is nothing that he wants more than for us to be walking in the fullness of who we are, with nothing in the way of knowing our uniqueness and our identity before him. But I think that's God's part. As I also think there's stuff that we can do, that we can be diligent with, to partner with that. And it's stuff that needs to happen internally. And I want to look at those now. 1 Peter, we looked at the verse earlier, talks about getting rid of envy. So I want to think then, what can we put on, if you like? What can we put on? What can we work on inside of us in order to partner with that process of becoming free and becoming whole? Firstly, trust. Put on trust. To embrace weakness and to keep moving forward through the areas that we battle, we have to go on a journey of trusting who God is in his nature and in his character. And actually, I think that's, that was one of my questions rooted in fear. Is God trustworthy? Can I trust him with 
the most precious desires of my heart. Can I trust him with having children one day? Can I trust him to be married one day? Can I trust him that the job that I'm really desiring is, is actually going to come forth one day? And like, I don't think it's necessarily that things are always going to go to plan and actually what we're, what we're really going for is always happens in the way that we want. But I do know this, that God is trustworthy. Intimacy positions us to trust God. As we spend time with him, as we know him, as we get to familiar with his voice, it positions us to trust him. Psalm 9 verse 10 says this, Those who know your name trust in you. For you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. And envy is a vehicle that I think the enemy uses to whisper lies. God's cheated me. It's not fair. He's overlooking me. I'm never going to get my chance. That's all from the enemy. Anything that's fear-based or guilt-based is from the enemy. So what kind of God is it then that we're placing our trust in? Banning, talk, Banning Liebscher talks about three um, aspects to the character of God that can be, that can be found in the Bible. And, and I wanted to pull on these three to show, to just, I mean, there's so many aspects to the nature of God. But I think these, these three in particular can help anchor our trust in who he is. Firstly, God cannot lie. Titus 1, 2 tells us that uh, all he has is truth. God cannot lie. And when he speaks, it's truth. There's no ability in God to mislead us or to deceive us or to twist things. Secondly, he's a perfect father. There's a really famous um, passage in Luke 11 where Jesus is talking about how if we as imperfect people know how to give our children good gifts, how much more will our heavenly father be able to give us the perfect gift He's a good father who is faithful. That's why we sang it this morning. Faithful, always faithful. True, always true. You'll never leave us. You're always with us. We say these things because we are partnering with truth, even when we don't feel that that's our reality necessarily. Thirdly, God's loving and kind. So he cannot lie. He's a perfect father and he is loving and he is kind. God is love. Oh, that's the best sentence, I think. God is love. We can put our trust in that kind of God. We can never overestimate his kindness towards us and his love towards us. So firstly, put on trust. Secondly, put on your identity. And again, all of this, remember, this is covered by that very first thing of knowing God's love. Okay, so it's God loves that casts out fear. So in the context of that, we need to put on and clothe ourselves with our identity. 1 John says, what marvelous love the Father has extended to us. Just look at it. We are called children of God. That's who we really are. Comparison cheats us and cheats this earth and cheats this church of who you really are, of who I really am. And I think God wants to deliver us from any kind of false identity. Because I'm really good at being me and you're really good at being you. And I know, I know that there's a whole process of sanctification, of being made holy, of being transformed to glory and glory. I know that. I know that there's God works in us. But innately, who we are, we're really good at that because that's how God's created you to be. And actually, to be try and be someone different or to try and go after what isn't yours, it's actually not going to enable us for us to be who we need to be. It's not putting on our identity. And with that, I think it's really important that we check how we talk about ourselves. Are my words in line with how God sees me? Do I talk about myself in a way that agrees with how the, what the Bible says about me? 
Proverbs says, for as he thinks in his heart, so is he. What is going on in here, that is what's going to come out of our mouths. And that is actually what our ears hear. Faith comes by hearing. And our, our world will be affected if we're speaking negatively. If we are speaking not in line with the word of God, we will start to fall in that identity that is based on lies and based on fear. Thirdly, put on contentment. All of these things are a message in themselves, but I'm hoping they're not unfamiliar ideas. So that's why I'm kind of just bringing all of them this morning because it's kind of this whole package that's enabled me to... Package, that's such a managerial type word, isn't it? It's this whole kind of shebang, that's better, that leads us forward um, and has led me out, like, out and responded better to responding to envy or jealousy. So thirdly, put on contentment. Philippians 4 says, For I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. This is Paul talking. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. So here we have a man who sits in prison because of corrupt officials facing possible execution. Here he is telling us that he knows contentment. This is a man that has had that has had far more wealth than he faces currently. He's had far more food than he faces currently. Like he could look back and think, actually, do you know what? Things were, things were a bit better back then. I preferred that season of time, actually. But he's writing in prison saying, no, I know how to be content. I've learned the secret. And what is it then? I can do all things in him who continually infuses me with strength. That's the literal translation of it. I can do all things in him who continually infuses me with strength. Christ in him, that was the source of his contentment and the source of his strength. Paul was, we've looked at Paul already, but Paul was so captivated by Christ, by Jesus, and not distracting, distracted by what other people had or even what he had previously and how it compared to today, that he could say, I know what it is to know contentment, to be content. Fourthly, let's put on thankfulness. Put on trust, put on your identity, put on contentment, put on thankfulness. Sometimes I think if we're in the midst of very difficult or testing or disappointing situations, Thankfulness seems like a million miles away from where we want to find ourselves or the position we want to put ourselves in. Theodore Roosevelt said, comparison is the thief of joy. But I think thankfulness is what can stop our joy from being stolen. 1 Thessalonians 5 says, give thanks in all circumstances, not just some, not in the ones that feel good, in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. We need to purposely cultivate thankfulness in ourselves. All of this stuff, it's internal. It's nothing to do with the external circumstances we find ourselves in. And in the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, we see, again, a really famous story, but we see these um, five loaves and two fish, and the disciples cast, cast it away. They ignore it. They don't see it. They don't see the provision. Jesus sees it. He says, thank you. He blesses it, and a miracle happens. Jesus saw the small. And I think sometimes perhaps we have that mentality of, I'll be thankful when the job comes. I'll be thankful when the finances come in. I'll be thankful uh, when the baby that I'm so dearly wanting has arrived. 
It's painful. I know it is. I'll be thankful when I'm not single anymore. I don't, I don't know what, what you're, how you're sitting here today and maybe the things that are in the forefront of your mind, but I'm telling you, there are things to be thankful for today. And it might be really small, but Jesus didn't ignore the small. He saw it and he said thankful. And the reason that thankful is important, crucial actually, is because it causes us to look up and it causes us to say thank you to our provider who is faithful I miss encountering God if I, if I miss the small and if I miss saying thanks, thank you for the small. You see, thankfulness lets us see what we do have. Comparison just shows up lack or perceived lack. And genuinely, if you think, I look at my life right now and I genuinely cannot see anything to say thank you for, start at the cross, meditate on the cross, put your eyes on the cross, That Jesus paid the highest price so that you can know freedom, so that you can be called a child of God. Start there. Genuinely, you will start to feel thankful because that is the thing you can most ever be thankful for. And that never changes. The sacrifice that Jesus made will never go, will never change, dependent on your circumstances. Start there if you need to. Okay, finally, before we close, all of that. All of that is internal, internal. So we diligently manage our internal environment, if you like, so that we are partnering with this love that God is putting on us that casts out any fear in us. But I do think there's just three things I want to really briefly mention that actually we can do externally, we can do with our words. Firstly, pray for the person, the person that you might be feeling envious or jealous of, pray for them. And I don't mean pray that everything they have will be taken away. I mean... (laughs) just to clarify, I mean, pray a blessing. Pray that God would bless them even more. Pray that they would have even more abundance. Pray that pray they would have even more anointing. They would have even more favor. Partner with what God's doing in them and pray it in. That's number one. Secondly, rejoice with them. When my friends experience breakthrough, rejoice. When they experience more freedom in something that they've been struggling with, rejoice. When they receive a financial gift, rejoice. Because actually, the inability to rejoice says nothing about those people. It says everything about me if I am not able to rejoice. Cultivate it. Cultivate rejoicing. Because it sows into my future as well. As we reap, we sow. As we sow, we reap. Whatever way around it is. The point is, as I put in rejoicing, that is what I will also be reaping back again. Thirdly, so pray, rejoice. Thirdly, encourage them. Encourage them for their journey. Because do you know what? What you see, there'll still be other stuff going on that they're needing to work really hard at. Encourage them in who they are. Encourage them in what you see God's doing with them. And why? With all of those things, because there is power in in the tongue. There's power with our words. Our words give life and they keep on giving life. So instead of feeding our inward envy and inward jealousy and sort of meditating over those Instagram photos, or is that just me? Again, maybe just me. Instead of feeding that, Why not use our words to partner with what God is doing and blessing that and and journeying with someone in that? Okay, let's pull this together. I've got less than one minute. I heard Havila Cunnington, who is um, a speaker that I love out in uh, Bethel, California, say something a few years back which really helped me. And she talked about seeing life in seasons. 
so winter, spring, summer, autumn, in, ca- in case we weren't sure there. Um, and she said that seasons come and go. And just because I'm in a winter right now doesn't mean the spring won't come. Just because you might be in a season of harvest doesn't mean you don't need to store up for the winter. And it's talking about that sense of actually life is an ebb and flow. Sometimes really difficult things happen and sometimes we're actually in a life that's really easy. But actually, the mature rejoice when someone's in a time of harvest. They hold on to the person who's in winter and they hope with the person in spring. But how often do we compare our winter to someone else's summer? That's what I want us to move away from. Actually, what's God doing in you? How can you encourage and bless what God's doing in someone else, even if it's something you really want? So I don't know where God's placed you right now. But in the ebb and flow of it all, it's about whose you are, and it's about who he is. That's what really matters. You are without rival. You are unique. He has got a specific calling for you that is only for you, And let's be a church that grabs it with both hands and runs with it as hard as we can. Okay, so I'm just going to pray. So maybe the um, if we've got a prayer team this morning, can they just come up to my left? Is that right? Yeah. Uh, uh, And if this is something that just resonates with you, I just really encourage you to get prayer this morning. Get someone to partner in it with you because there is freedom this morning. There's freedom. So why don't you stand with me? And if you feel God is talking to you about this, maybe just place a hand on your heart. Just position yourselves in a way that's like, yes, God, I am ready to receive. Holy Spirit, I just thank you that you're here. I thank you that in you there is nothing to fear. I thank you, God, that when you see us, you see us through the blood of Jesus. And something that we might find despicable about ourselves or something we just so want to get rid of. God, you see us with eyes of love. So God, for those of us that can identify where envy or jealousy and unhealthy comparison are a struggle, we just say, God, we repent. And we want to clothe ourselves with trust, with our identity with thankfulness, with contentment, and God, with your love. Clothe us us with your love, God. And let it drive out anything in us that is just not of you.